It's Friday, May 26th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. Today is our listener feedback episode with questions and comments and criticisms on things like immigration with a listener named Joshua saying that I am wrong about migrants and their contributions to society. We are also going to tackle crime and who is ultimately responsible. Listener Adam thinks that I got it wrong on a previous brief that I gave you about stolen cars in Baltimore. Next, listener John says that I need to clarify my stance about vaccines and tell you all about my vax status, including as it relates to the COVID shot. Well, then third, listeners, y'all have been asking about how we clean up the FBI and the CIA following the damning disclosures from the recent Durham report that laid out their lawlessness. Later, we talk about the podcast with some questions about, well, the podcast itself, Like, how do I sniff out fake news? Plus a question about the closing line of my podcast, uh, specifically where uh, whether there's any connection to a fellow named Paul Harvey. So with that, let's get to our first listener question and critique of the morning. So first up, let's hear from Joshua from somewhere in America. He expressed disagreement with my briefs to you all on immigration. Quote, I have heard you say multiple times that illegal migrants take jobs from Americans. Now, I don't have all the data, but my personal lived experience does not see it that way. My parents immigrated here legally, but I grew up with many illegal migrants. Whether it was landscaping or agriculture and farming, they performed honorable jobs with dignity and noble work ethic. I believe that we need these immigrants who are especially willing to do work and do the jobs that many lazy Americans would not do and would rather collect unemployment checks, end quote. Ooh, all right. Well, Joshua, I, I certainly appreciate the note and certainly the disagreement. So let's talk about, though, uh, facts and data rather than our lived experience. Right? So arguably, the best study on this issue is one by the U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. All right, it's entitled The Economic and Fiscal Consequences of Immigration, and it was completed back in 2017. Now, if you read it, I think you'll agree it is a thoughtful and pretty measured study of immigration and migration. It's pretty helpful to sort out facts from feelings. So here's what the researchers found. First-generation migrants, like the ones pouring over the border unlawfully, those folks are a net drain on governments. In other words, new migrants will cost us more than they give us economically. And you know what? That sort of makes common sense, actually. First-generation migrants usually don't speak English, especially these folks coming over the border, right? nor do they come with any skills other than manual labor. So understandably, they are going to be a net drain economically. They cost more than they provide. But that's not the end of the story. There's an additional cost. Right. The study further found that these first generation migrants are especially harmful economically to those Americans without high school educations. And that's because these folks are all competing for the same jobs, right? Jobs that don't require skills. Plus, here's some especially bad news. As these folks are all competing together for these same low skill jobs, 
right? All that competition drives down wages, right? It's just supply and demand at work. Now, to be clear, this issue of job competition and lower wages, you know, that ebbs and flows depending on the year and the overall strength of the economy. But the broad data and the trends over time are very clear, as noted in this study, right? First generation migrants are a net drain on society and they harm our poorest and most vulnerable citizens. All right, so what about second and third generation migrants? You know, the kids and grandkids of those first generation folks. Well, data from this study show that they, those kids and grandkids, are net contributors to the economy, right? Their families are no longer net drains on society. And that's because those kids and grandkids have been, well, educated in America. So they have skills and they speak English, which is obviously a critical need in the U.S. economy. In other words, there's sort of a little bit in this study for everybody, you know, to argue what you'd like. But I'll tell you, we've got one big problem that, well, is not in this study and very few people talk about, and it's a tech problem. So you might have seen recent headlines talking about AI or artificial intelligence, you know, the chat GPT. Now, some folks call it machine learning, but whatever you call it, AI is competing with the human brain to do all sorts of stuff. And that means it's competing with human labor. And that's a problem, Joshua, because AI doesn't need a salary or vacation or sick days like you and I do. So if AI continues to advance in its ability, like people like you know Elon Musk and others say it will, your labor and that of those first-generation migrants, not to mention their kids and grandkids, well, all human labor will become increasingly unnecessary or less valuable. In other words, we're not going to need as many workers. So that's part of why I believe that we need fewer immigrants and migrants future forward. Right? I believe that we are fundamentally facing a future that needs fewer workers because of these technological advances. And by the way, it's not just AI or machine learning. It's also robotics, right? Look up Boston Dynamics and Atlas Robot if you have never seen that thing in action, right? And then imagine it with a human-like brain driven by advances in AI. And I think you're going to see where I'm going with this. Now, it is true. I could be absolutely wrong. There's a group called the Luddites, and they were making a similar argument to mine back in the early 1800s, and they were wrong, or, you know, maybe they were just a little bit early. But as for me, I would rather we not risk it, right? I would rather that we limit migration, encourage Americans who are here to have babies if we need more workers, and then prepare for a very different future that fundamentally requires less human labor. All right, next up, we have Adam from somewhere in America. He wrote in after a brief I gave you back on May 15th about car thefts in the city of Baltimore. Now, to refresh our memories, the city of Baltimore sued the car companies Kia and Hyundai because their claim was those companies hadn't made their cars with proper anti-theft devices, even though they could have. They instead put profit before safety. So my view was that such a lawsuit was frankly absurd, right? That the problem is city leadership and the lawlessness of the people in that city, not the cars, right? But Adam disagreed. And he said, quote, hey, Brian, I'm usually with you, but I have to disagree slightly. 
Many of the Kia and Hyundai models do not have the same type of anti-theft features that most newer cars generally do. And their ignition systems are extremely easy to activate without a key. Right? I think that jumping immediately in to defend a Kia and Hyundai may be a little bit premature, end quote. All right, Adam, a very good note, very thoughtful, and I appreciate the critique. So on one hand, I'm hearing you, all right? I'm not a lawyer, but the argument that you make feels a little bit like when an attorney files suit about something called an attractive nuisance, right? In other words, let's say it's a house or a car or whatever is so unusually enticing, especially to a child, that the burden falls on the manufacturer or the homeowner to make it less attractive. So in other words, the cars by Kia and such have been made so poorly with, frankly, non-existent anti-theft devices that people, especially kids, are unusually attracted to steal them. So Baltimore is right to sue and force these car companies to make these cars, well, less attractive by installing these anti-theft devices. So for what it's worth, both Hyundai and Kia have uploaded software to their cars here over the last two or three weeks to make them harder to steal. And three days after my original brief, these car companies settled some lawsuits with a $200 million class action payout for owners of those vehicles who had their cars stolen or damaged. But you know what? I still stand by my statement. And here's why. The problem, ladies and gentlemen, is not fundamentally with the cars, right? It's with the people that think stealing cars is acceptable, right? That stealing anything is acceptable. Because Adam, I promise you that these thieves are not going to stop their illegal behavior now that these cars are harder to steal, all right? They're, they're going to steal something else. And that's because these people and these cities are sick, and to help you understand that argument, let me tell you about a United States that you might not know about or remember, but I do. Right? When I was a boy, people left their houses unlocked and keys in their cars, right? sometimes in the ignition. And I know that that was even more so true during my parents' and grandparents' generation. Now, there were thieves and burglars, of course, but crime was less common in general and most especially for vehicles, right? Otherwise, folks like my parents and grandparents and people in my town, they would have locked more stuff up or car companies would have designed things that were more impossible to steal. But that didn't happen. So why is that? Why was America so different years ago? Whew, well, that is a long conversation, but I think that part of the answer, maybe even the biggest part, is that our families in this country are in a state of crisis. And let me tell you a very startling statistic that backs that up. According to the Pew Research Center, the United States has the world's highest rate of children living in a single parent household. Right In 2019, that included 49% of black children, 28% of Hispanic kids, and 21% of white children. So compare that to 1960. Only 7% of kids lived with just one parent back then. Not 21% or 49% of kids as now, only 7%. So Adam, I ask you based on that data, why do you think that we might have a problem with Kia and Hyundai who didn't install the right anti-theft devices to prevent people and especially kids from stealing them? 
Or is it perhaps that we have a kid problem, a societal problem, a family problem, because our families are fundamentally and totally screwed up, all because one parent just can't do it all. So, Adam, as you and others wrestle with that, let me offer you one other thing. So there are lots of other variables that we could talk about here to better understand crime and why it's, you know, happening and what's driving it. So for instance, in the city of Baltimore, here's something that you might not know. From the years 1993 to 2013, the city found that they had 65,000 children who had high levels of lead in their blood. And we know that lead poisoning causes kids to have, amongst other things, lifelong struggles with impulse control and aggressiveness. So that lead, by the way, came mostly from paint in Baltimore's housing for poor folks. So Adam, look, I'm hearing you. You know, maybe car companies can install better anti-theft equipment, and that's fine. But that is fundamentally addressing a symptom, right? The cars, Adam, are not the ultimate problem. With that... Let's take our first break of the morning. So enjoy the following messages from our sponsoring partners. And then in a minute or two, we'll be right back. Friends, I'm excited to tell you about Arc Seed Kits, like Noah's Ark. And here's why I'm excited. On The Right Report, we talk a lot about two things. We talk about your pocketbook and how to save you some money. We also talk about preparing for global events, like how we could find ourselves at war in Asia. Well, with ARC Seed Kits, you can address both of those concerns at once. The all-in-one seed kit helps you grow your own food for life. It has over 65 varieties of fruits and vegetables sprouting from 50,000 heirloom seeds. And let me tell you why that is so important. Heirloom seeds last year after year. Each crop helps you grow the next. But that's not true of 95% of most seeds that you buy. Those last only one year. That's why heirloom seeds from ARC Seed Kits are so great. It's a lifetime of food security. So go to arcseedkits.com. Again, that's ARC like Noah's ARC. And buy your heirloom seeds today. And if you do, make sure you use promo code RIGHT, like my last name, W-R-I-G-H-T, and that'll get you 10% off your order. So go to arcseedkits.com, promo code RIGHT, and invest in good food and a bigger wallet for life. Welcome back to The Right Report, and welcome back to our first episode, powered by you, with your listener feedback and a chance to ask me anything. So John P. from somewhere in America took exception to my brief back on May 2nd, when I spoke of the federal government's ending of the COVID national emergency, right? I criticized the vaccine mandates during that brief, and John thought that that was wrong. Quote, I would bet that as a CIA officer, you were vaccinated against things like typhoid and yellow fever and hepatitis. And much like that, Brian, we don't want people to refuse to have themselves or their kids vaccinated against things like polio, for instance, which would result in thousands of crippled children. So I suggest that you reveal your vaccine history and you clarify that you are against mandates, but not against vaccines. Well, John, I sincerely appreciate the response, but I'm going to be honest with you. I will not be revealing my vaccine history or any other medical information unless I choose to at a point of my choosing. All right. I'm not sure 
at what point that we thought it was appropriate in polite society to make these sorts of demands of other people, but I choose not to participate. But your broader comment about vaccines is really important, John, and we need to talk about it because I promise you there will be another outbreak of some virus again, right? History shows that to be true throughout the ages. And we need to learn some very important lessons from this last one. So let's start with this. Why does the government mandate that kids get the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, but generally does not uh, mandate the, the, the flu vaccine, right? What's the public health difference there? Well, here's the answer. So let's start with those MMR vaccines that the government mandates, right? So if you get that shot, right, you will not get sick with any of those diseases. Crucially, you will also not pass it along to anyone else either, right? In other words, it is a sterilizing vaccine in that it sterilizes or stops the virus and disease dead in its tracks, right? To say that a little bit differently, there's a personal benefit there, right? You don't get sick. And there's a public benefit. Other people don't get sick from you. And that's why in public health, there's been a general willingness to violate one's liberty and bodily autonomy to mandate these kinds of vaccines, right? They, they sterilize the threat, offering you and the public a critical benefit, and they prevent undue societal costs like profound medical care. On the other hand, we've got the flu vaccine, right? That is a different class of vaccine. That is a therapeutic vaccine, right? It may provide you some personal benefit, maybe a little bit less sick, let's say, but you're still going to get sick. And crucially, you are still going to be able to pass it on to others. Uh, maybe not as many, and that's good, but there is ultimately little or modest public health benefit. Right? And because of that, public health officials and governments on all levels have never mandated those therapeutic vaccines for the general public. Now, maybe the military has or some companies on occasion, but it is exceedingly rare because those vaccines are therapeutic and you should have the choice whether to get that therapy. So to recap, sterilizing vaccines help you and others with a personal and public benefit. Therapeutic vaccines, on the other hand, might help you, but will not help others, right? There's only a personal benefit, no material public benefit. So with that as background, let's talk about the COVID shots. In late December of 2020, the U.S. federal government authorized COVID shots under emergency use authorization. Now, they initially claimed that those shots were sterilizing, right? If, if, if you get the jab, you're not going to get COVID, nor will you pass it along to anybody else. So the argument was there was a personal and a public benefit. But that was wrong, right? By July of 2021, we had very clear data that those shots were not sterilizing, right? There was a study of an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts, back in July of 2021 that showed very clearly that vaccinated folks were having what they called a, quote, rare breakthrough infection, end quote. <laughs> well, that proved to be very, very wrong as well within the next month or so. It wasn't rare at all. And that's because at most COVID vaccines then as now are therapeutic, right? There may be a personal benefit for some, but there's no material public benefit, right? You still are going to get sick and you're still going to pass COVID to others, Right? Just like what happens when you get a flu vaccine. 
Therefore, obviously, there should not have been a COVID vaccine mandate starting in at least July of 2021 when we knew it wasn't sterilizing. It was just therapeutic. And yet over that summer of 2021 and into the fall, in fact, Joe Biden slapped on a national vaccine mandate. I believe it was in September, right? So he joined other state and local governments doing the same. But when he did, right, when they all did, despite that evidence from July from Provincetown, right, we threw out decades of good public health policy and precedent, right? We forced an experimental therapeutic vaccine into people's bodies, right? It was not sterilizing. And a few exceptions were granted. We all remember what happened. People were fired from jobs. People were kicked out of the military. Businesses shut down. Lives ruined. And lives were lost. And one of those was Jessica Berg Wilson, who died in Washington State from a COVID vaccine injury due to a blood clotting issue. Her family said that she took the shot only because she wanted to volunteer at her child's school. And they refused unless she was vaxxed. Well, she did. And she died because of it. Right? Two children, as of this morning, no longer have a mother because of that mandate. And to be clear, she didn't need the therapeutic shot because she was not obese. Right? And that's important, as I shared with you on May 2nd. Right? Studies in April of 2020, right? just three months into the pandemic, Right, Those studies showed that the obese made up the overwhelming majority of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. In fact, let's remind ourselves of how Mr. Biden framed it at the time that he issued those COVID vaccine mandates, despite all this information. Right. Listen, quote, the unvaccinated overcrowd our hospitals, leaving no room for someone with a, a heart attack or pancreatitis or cancer. Right? We have been patient with the unvaccinated, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost us all, end quote. That was a lie, folks. It was a violation of good public health and precedent established over decades, right? What the data showed when he said those words, right, was that the issue of risk was not, nor is it still about being vaccinated with this, what is a therapeutic experimental COVID vaccine. Rather, The issue of risk was and is ultimately about being unhealthy, about being obese. Although I think it's fair to argue that it is also at this point about government tyranny. Our politicians and public health officials abandoned reason, facts, and good practice about vaccines. Why, though? Why did they do it? Well, I'm going to let you decide that. But I'll tell you what's clear. It wasn't about data wasn't about science, and it wasn't about medicine. So, John, I do hope that that was clarifying. And as ever, if you choose to get the COVID shot, good for you. right? Your body, your risk, your choice. But let's be very clear. The COVID vaccine mandates were wrong. They were wrong on the science. They were wrong on the data. And they were a violation of good public health policy. And ultimately... They were at the very heart of the matter, a massive violation of human liberty and bodily autonomy. All right. With that, ladies and gentlemen, let's take our first break and continue on in just a minute with our listener feedback episode. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks, for our final set of questions on this special Friday episode of listener questions and comments and 
criticisms. So back on May 16th, I delivered a brief to you all about the Durham report by Special Counsel John Durham regarding the, well, what he called the lawlessness of the FBI and the Department of Justice related to their Trump-Russia investigation. That investigation, as he showed, was shown to be without merit and lacking, quote, sufficient and strict fidelity to the law, end quote. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it was on May 16th. And when we're done here, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it. I think it's very important. But regardless, I got some pretty outraged feedback from you all about how we must reform the FBI in particular, but also the CIA. And that's because the Durham report also showed that the CIA director at the time, John Brennan, knew that the FBI's investigation lacked merit, that there was no intel to support it. In fact, he briefed that to the then-President Barack Obama and then-Vice President Joe Biden. Now, despite that, Mr. Brennan went on for years to various TV and newspaper outlets to talk about what he said was the treason of President Trump with the Russians, even though he full well knew that the entire allegation was an FBI lie. And just to be very clear here, by any standards, that was a form of a coup d'etat, right? If I were an intel officer looking at those facts about another country, I would say absolutely there was an unlawful attempt to damage and remove a candidate and later a duly elected president. And that was done by the opposition party and the levers of power that they controlled in both the intel and law enforcement communities. So, yeah, this is a big deal and we need to clean it up, right? The question is how, which is why folks like Kelton and Aldo wrote in to me. So, gentlemen and everybody else, I really appreciate this question. And frankly, you're outraged. They are justified and it is righteous. So as for solutions, my goodness, this is a special brief in its own. But frankly, let me just keep it simple for now. First, you need a new president, right? Because this one is not going to reform either agency, obviously. Second, a new president can and must nominate a both new a uh, FBI and CIA director and fire other existing senior leadership. You know, you just have to clean house. Third, those new directors then have to set up internal investigations that start looking for employees who have violated their oaths and commitment to the mission. Right? It doesn't have to be a violation of the law. It just has to be a clear violation of their oaths and commitment to mission as determined by these new directors. Now, for what it's worth, if I were one, I would focus especially on those employees who have been hired over the past 10 years or so, because in my experience, that's when the partisan rot really started to take hold. So here's the good news. It is relatively straightforward to do this. I won't go into details, but there are some very good records being kept about employees and about a six-month scrub of employee records by a dedicated team, including, by the way, a scrub of all the emails by these employees. That should clarify who the bad apples are. And then you just start firing people without hesitation. You strip them of their security clearances. That'll make sure that they have less of a chance to ever get a job again, frankly, in the government. And wherever the facts allow, damage their ability to find new employment, right? Document the negative reviews and offer up poor references. You got to be ruthless about this, right? That's the way that you teach lessons and you clean up the rot. 
So for the record, I'm also open to disbanding the FBI and reorganizing their responsibilities at the state level. As for the CIA, I think that a dramatic downsizing will solve most of the problem. But, you know, if we want to tear it down and and throw it to the wind, like uh, President Jack Kennedy allegedly said many years ago, well, let's talk about it. I think we have a lot of risks to manage abroad, but perhaps those can be done with other organizations and other people. All right, next up, let's take a question from Kyle from somewhere in America who recently started his own podcast. And he asked me, what are the best practices that you use, Brian, when looking for news and conducting research? How do you separate the real news from the fake news or, you know, the facts from opinion? Well, Kyle, congratulations on the podcast. Send me an email and let me know what it is and I'll take a listen. Meanwhile, great set of questions about sourcing and research. So first, let me tell you this. You have to assume that all media outlets have a political bias, right? There is no such thing as unbiased news. And you know what? That's okay, right? We should be looking for outlets, I think, that say, all right, here are the facts and the data, and here's our opinion on it, but yeah, I'll make the call, right? And that's what I try to do. So when I do research, I know going in which outlets have a bias, and I immediately get to work on sorting out the facts and data that are buried usually pretty deeply amongst their bias. So that's why you often hear me make reference to media outlets like Reuters and AP and AFP, Axios, New York Times, Washington Post, and Bloomberg, right? Those are all leftist outlets with a leftist bias, right? But sometimes there's some really great stuff in there, you know, facts and data mixed in with their propaganda. Now, meanwhile, the same is true of conservative outlets uh, that have a bias, like the Washington Examiner, the New York Post, the Washington Free Beacon, and Fox News. Now, for what it's worth, I find that uh, Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal, is fairly centrist and data-driven, maybe a little bit conservative on their opinion side. Also, the BBC, our friends in the UK, They're pretty centrist, too, especially for international news. Now, every once in a while, I'm going to pull from other, well, far leftist outlets that can, well, occasionally produce some good stuff. So, for instance, when it comes to the Mexican cartels and all the problems that they create, the leftist media outlet Vice is really good. All right. One final thing that you might not know. The Washington Post is typically where the CIA will go to leak. On the other hand, the New York Times is where the FBI typically goes to leak their stuff. So when either of those outlets report on anything related to those two agencies or organizations, I immediately become suspicious because it is almost always government propaganda. Finally, this morning, a question from Roger in Thomasville, Georgia, Scott in Denton, Texas. And Todd from somewhere in America, they have noticed that at the end of the podcast, I offer you all a good day. And to them, that sounds familiar. Kind of uh, like what another fellow used to say at the end of his radio program. It's the late, great Paul Harvey. And they wanted to know, Brian, do you do that on purpose? Do you offer that sort of hat tip to Mr. Paul Harvey? Well, gentlemen, good question. And the answer is, I didn't do it on purpose, but subconsciously, I probably did. And I'm glad I did. And that's because when I was a young man, I spent every lunch in my 1966 Ford pickup 
listening to Mr. Paul Harvey. Right? I loved his voice, his wisdom, his humor, and his insights. I just trusted the man. And I'll be honest with you, I, I miss him. I, I miss that generation. And if you've never listened to Paul Harvey, go to YouTube this weekend and, and find some of his old broadcasts. I think you'll be glad that you did. So Roger, Scott, and Todd, I am so grateful uh, to offer up at the end of the day this, this homage to him at the end of my podcast, whether that was intentional or not, because he's a legend. And we need more voices like his, right? voices that offer up what he did, which is common sense and love of country. It was stuff that when we shut off the radio, it helped us get through the rest of the day. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, let's conclude your morning brief, but let's do so today with a special remembrance of Mr. Paul Harvey. As always, I will see you on Monday, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.